0: Welcome to the Sandhills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. All righty, so, hey, thank you, Kevin, appreciate that. Uh, if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, today we're gonna to talk about the cost of disobedience, the cost of disobedience. If you're a parent, you've already reviewed this with your kids, if you're a kid, your parents have already reviewed this with you, there's always a cost to disobedience. In fact, it's something that God has kind of baked into the world. And so, even those who would, who would choose to be disobedient to Whatever rule, law, organization is over you, if you ever choose to be disobedient, you will pay a cost. And uh, uh, not only has God baked that in, but we see it lived out. But it's even more direct. When God gives you a specific command and then you disobey it, there's a more significant cost. That's what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. Um, In 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, opening up here uh, right now with Saul stepping into his monarchy. If you were with us last week, what we talked about, there was a bit of a transition and uh, it was called Samuel's farewell address. So Samuel uh, was the the main prophet, the priest of the nation. Uh, God was essentially the king of the Hebrews through Samuel, uh, but the people were begging for a king like the other nations because it just made more sense, somebody to fight their battles, lead them, and, uh, and so God felt rejected, and uh, Samuel expressed that, you guys are rejecting God, um, but they, they did reject him, and um, so God did appoint for them a king, their first king ever in this monarchy is Saul, and uh, so now we, we step into learning more about Saul in chapter 13, verse 1. All right, um, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, okay, as we dig into this, the, the thing we're going to be wrestling with is, is Saul a man after God's own heart? A man after God's own heart. You've, you've probably heard that phrase before. It comes from here. Like, before we're done today, you'll hear that phrase and go like, oh, this is where it starts. So in here, uh, is Saul a man after God's own heart? Well, first of all, it starts off, he lived for one year. Now, this language is really confusing. Saul lived for one year, right? So he's one years old. And then he became king, all right? So that must be, he's two years old. And when he'd reign for two years over Israel, he chooses 3,000 men. So now at the age of four, he's leading an army of 3,000 uh, people. Yeah, so that's obviously not true. We know that's not what happened because we've already followed his life and we know Saul was a young man, probably late teens, um, by the time all this stuff begins to happen in his life. And so by the time he's stepping into this season... He's still maybe late teens or early 20s as he's assuming the monarchy. So that's different. Uh, So here's what's going on here, just for fun. Um, Do you know in the original text, the Hebrew text, I know you don't know this because I learned it, um, there's a digit missing (laughs) in regard to uh, the years that are involved here. And so we actually don't know the content uh, of what's going on here. And so when you read various translations of the Bible, they're all trying to wrestle with kind of what is implied here. Actually, it's fun because I had a chance to talk to uh, one of our professors who's a professor of Old Testament. And he said, well, this is kind of the things uh, that reminds us that we're dealing with ancient manuscripts. uh, That literally, when you go back, there are just a few things. And there's not a lot of them in the Bible. So I don't want you to feel like, I can't trust the word of God. Uh, But there's just a few things, um, little things in there that's like, hmm. I don't know. That one's, that one's missing. But we know he's not a uh, two-year-old or four-year-old uh, leading the kingdom. And we know, too, in Acts chapter 13, verse 21, uh, the, there's a description that Saul reigned for 40 years. And so we do have some dates and some times around him. Uh, but here, not so certain of what's going on. So with that in mind, we'll just leave verse 1 and go on to the rest of the passage. All right. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, so I like maps, and so because we have maps, we like maps, we're going to be up here on the screen. And uh, somebody in our congregation gave me a laser pointer, <laughs> so I could, I could have fun, yay. All right, I don't know how much I'm going to use this, but... We'll give it a shot today. All right, so here's the Jordan. This is your main definer for the country of Israel, the Jordan River. Um, the north is the Sea of Galilee and south is the Dead Sea. That's kind of your eastern border as we typically talk about it. Uh, and then over here will be the Mediterranean Sea. And then you know down here you'll get into like Africa and stuff like that. And over here you would have, I'm just now I'm just playing. Um, all right, so here's where we are. We're the south, southern part, uh, southwest of the Jordan River, uh, just north of the Dead Sea. Uh, Jerusalem is right in this area, at least the future Jerusalem. Uh, So all the stuff that we're talking about is kind of right here in in this mountainous region. Uh, I just think it's helpful, again, to to remind us that we're talking about real places, real people, real events, real things that happened, Uh, very unlike other religious texts, uh, that uh, some of them uh, straight up just have fabricated their their whole stories, their people, their histories, Uh, but not the Bible. This is all verifiable. So Here we are, this is what's going on here. 3,000 soldiers uh, have been retained by Saul. So this, I guess, this is his elite fighting force. These are his, uh, I don't know, Navy SEALs or uh, Army Rangers. I don't know who your your studs are, but this is their group. Um, And uh, and he's got this army that's working for him. Now, previously when they had to go to battle, it worked like a militia. And a militia is when like, oh my goodness, there's enemy on our shore, everybody grab a gun and let's fight. Uh, Which actually uh, kind of the colonial days of America were like that. When we uh, decided to to throw a bunch of um, British tea into the harbor, uh, we, we ended up having all these soldiers show up. And it was that. It was everybody grab a gun, let's fight. And so that's how militia works. Well, this, was, this is Israel's first standing army that they have. It's, it's only 3,000 strong, so it's not huge. Uh, but this is what they've got going on. But what's really curious here is he says, uh, this, this is all going on, A 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah. So Jonathan just shows up unannounced. And you, like you should be asking, although maybe you've read the Bible, but you, you should be asking like, who? who's this Jonathan dude? Like, where's he come from? Um, And as it's gonna turn out, Jonathan is Saul's son, uh, which is really surprising because Saul is four. Um, So, (laughs) like, this is just a really weird moment. Um, But no, if, if you're not familiar with him, Jonathan, as opposed to Saul you're gonna really end up liking Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan's the kind of guy who would make a great best friend uh, when you read about him. He is faithful, he's courageous, uh, devoted to the Lord. Uh, In fact, if not for Saul's upcoming sin here, if Saul's monarchy had continued, Jonathan would have been a great successor. It sounds like he would have been a great king, uh, but he will not have that privilege because of his dad's uh, failures. But uh, one of the things that Jonathan does is with his 1,000 soldiers, he attacks an outpost of the Philistines and, uh, and destroys a garrison of soldiers that's there. So we don't know exactly how many soldiers were there, but a garrison, whatever that would be, um, and he, he wiped them out. So they, they kind of had this military victory. Now, that's That's cool in the way that an ambush is cool because you can get a victory. But what do you do (laughs) when the Philistines, who are a significant uh, nation that knows how to fight and has a significant standing army, uh, what do you do when they retaliate? And so that's that's where we're gonna end up here uh, very shortly. Uh, and it says here they attribute uh, the victory to Saul, and then Saul trumpets it. He's let everybody know Saul's had this victory. Now, you could look at that and go, well, that wasn't your victory, Saul. That was really Jonathan's victory, Uh, but but that's not how victories work. Uh, Like, even in our nation, like, if if we send our army or navy or air force or or just our military go out, and they, they accomplish a great victory, we don't come back and say, that was a victory of this, I don't know, general or this commander or something. Like, we don't say that. We say it was a victory for the U.S., right it was a a corporate victory and so this is the same kind of thing that Saul is just attributing the victory to himself as the king the reigning king of of Israel Uh, although he is putting it on him and not like Israel's victory so that's something and then he tells the people he wants to meet them at Gilgal that's where it finishes and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal now Gilgal's got several significant uh, parts of it just I'm just saying this because you'll know it's a significant place because this is where Samuel told Saul to go and I'll meet you at Gilgal Uh, this is also at Gilgal where Saul was made king officially and so this is a place of Significance. So, wherever, wherever he's sending them there, it's tied into a significant uh, place here. So, now let's go to verse uh, 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped in Michmash in the east of Beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, The people hid themselves in caves, and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. All right, so now you've stirred up the hornet's nest, and uh, they're going to respond. And they're going to send 30,000 chariots. Now, chariots, you know, they were what they were, and I... I'm not a, a person who fought or understands uh, ancient fighting, but uh, I think chariots are pretty significant. Uh, to have 30,000 of them is a lot, and uh, so they've got them, and then they've got, uh, was it 6,000 people on horseback? So that's that's another big thing. Uh, but the last one's the one I want to draw your attention to, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. All right, so you already had 36,000 to begin with, and then you add like sand on the seashore, people who are standing there with swords, spears, whatever it would be. Uh, Now let's just review. How many people were in Saul's army? 3,000. And we have 36,000 plus an uncountable multitude of soldiers. All right, so now you're Israel. How are you feeling right now? Uh, you're feeling like, yeah, I'd hide in a tomb. I would, <laughs> I would jump in a well. I would hide in a cave. Like I don't want to be anywhere near. Uh, what is going on here? It, it was great when we celebrated this victory over a very small outpost of Philistine soldiers, uh, but now the Philistine army has shown up, and we don't feel so bold anymore. And so the army is beginning to scatter, Uh, people are freaking out, Uh, they're hiding in in strange places. And uh, then we get to this next part in verse eight and we find out that sometimes there's just no time to wait for God, uh, at least in the eyes of some people. Beginning in verse eight. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Now, this is interesting here. So apparently Samuel has said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait till I get there. And when I get there, I'm gonna make an offering for the people. Now, we've studied, for those of us who've been reading through this, and we've been doing the whole book of 1 Samuel, we've studied 1 Samuel, we have seen that when Israel's in trouble, God shows up right? He, he has taken care of his people. He knows how to provide for his people. They don't have to have a massive army that when God thunders, he can, he can scare the enemy in their boots and give victories to Israel. We've already seen that. That was chapter seven. So, like, this whole idea that God can fight the battle for you, but you're still going to freak out a little bit, right? I mean, like, just in real life, in real talk, like, this is a real thing that happened. You've got 3,000 people in your army, they show up like the sand of the seashore. Like, you're, even though God's always been there for you, you're gonna freak out. And the reason I know that is because it's exactly what you do. Uh, I guarantee this. I, for, and I, I'm, Now I wanna talk to people who've been Christians for a very long time. So how, let's say more than you know, five years. Like, you've been a Christian. If I was to ask you how many times has God let you down, I bet unanimously... Zero would be the response. Like God has never let you down ever. And so for those, by the way, who are younger in their faith or those who are investigating the faith, please hear the testimony from those who've been walking with God for a while. God has never disappointed us. Then we hit the next crisis and we panic almost as though there is no God, right? And I just feel like God could look at us and go, what are you you doing? Like I've always been there. I've always rescued you. And, And this idea of urgency, urgency can totally disrupt your faith. Right? And it's just like, yeah, but like, I need you now, you know, and God's like, oh, I messed up my timing. Uh, You're like, that's not how this works. So this is what's going on here with Saul. Saul Saul's like, God's always provided, he's always trusted. He put me here as king, and yet right now I need him. There's an army in the doorstep. Samuel said, wait seven days. He's not here, it's been seven days. We gotta move on. We don't have time to wait anymore. So now he's wrestling with with timing, and now it's getting uh, a little wonky. So he does something he should not have done. Like there's all sorts of things you can do as king, but you don't get to be priest as well. That's a special role designated for Samuel. And when you stepped up to make offerings for Israel, you crossed a line. I don't care if you are the sovereign king of all Israel, you are not the priest. And so when he did this, he crossed a significant line with God and with Samuel. And so when Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? And then Saul begins to make an excuse well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at it, minkman, like it's just immediately like all this displacement of blame, you know, <laughs> like we are waiting, people are going, you weren't here, you said you'd be here, where were you? Yeah, you know, what are you looking at me? You're the problem, you know, like there's all this stuff. And this reminds me of like parents who've shown up at home unexpected and you catch your kids doing all the stuff you told them not to do, right? That's just, <laughs> that's how that works. And then immediately the excuses begin to flow, you know, and, and that's exactly what happened. Well, you know, see what happened was you, you weren't here and the people were scattered and you gave all these excuses and none of them are, uh, are satisfying but this is exactly what happens when you're in trouble. So the summary though would be something like this. So when it looked like things weren't happening like I needed them to or I wanted them to, I decided to go ahead and violate God's will so we could get things done. That's the summary of it. Now when you hear that, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they did. The only caution would be is that something that we do. Like, like when things don't work like like we had really expected God to work them out in our lives, do we just say, well, I got I to start doing some stuff then. I got I to push some things forward. And then you, you achieve a very fleshly result uh, instead of what God had promised for you and, and planned for you. Uh, and I, I would just say this too. We have to be very careful when we begin to presume on the grace of God. Uh, and that's something that, that probably Saul was, Saul's probably thinking to himself, well, I am king and God made me king. So therefore, even though this does cross a line, it's probably okay. He's probably rationalizing that with himself. Um, and he's at this point, presuming upon the grace of God, and I think that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, but, but to his credit, this is a very intense situation. It's real, and I'm somewhat sympathetic to him. I can't imagine the stress of having this massive army show up. You've got 3,000 men in your army. You're about to be wiped out. Any other army you're gonna put together, you're gonna cobble together. Before we're done today, we'll find out that Israel doesn't even have legitimate weaponry so even when their army shows up, they can't fight. Uh, and you're desperate for God. And God's not showing up when you thought he would. And Samuel's not showing up. Uh, and you really don't know what to do. And so when you don't know what to do, now you, you begin to panic. And that's when you make bad decisions. Now, So Samuel's delayed. So this has become a test. Now, whether or not it was intended to be a test by God or it just became one, um, Saul has failed this test when he stepped into the role of priest. Um, and, I, and I like this, too, because in verse 12, he says, Now the Philistines... Uh, he had mustered at me. He said, uh, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. So this is his excuse. The Philistines have come down, people are beginning to scatter and, and I had to force myself to offer the burnt offering. Oh, I like, I like this. I like where we're going with this. He did catch a kid. Uh, that's what happened. Samuel did catch his kid doing something wrong. Like, so this is like he comes up and, and Saul's response is this. Like, listen, listen, Samuel, before you even start, I get it you're mad at me, and, and God's mad at me, and maybe even the people are mad at me, but you know what? Nobody's more mad at me than I am. I mean, I had to force myself to do it, and I didn't even wanna do it, so I really think we're all on the same page here. You know? <laughs> like, like this whole, like, wait, what? No, you're not on our side. You're on the opposite side. You're the one who did the bad thing. You're not the one. It's like, it reminds me of when people get caught in something in the media, and uh, the media will be interviewing them, and they'll, they'll say a phrase like this, nobody's more disappointed in me than I am. You know, like, oh, come on. What a cheesy thing to say. <laughs> like, it's just a way to displace blame. Now, ironically, of course, also, we all know that feeling because we've all done dumb stuff over the years and we've all had done dumb stuff that we've been caught in. Uh, but this is, this is what he did. So, uh, and I, I think probably part of this, and you're about to get a judgment from God on this. I think part of this is this, though. When you're the king and you publicly disregard the Lord's will, what are you modeling for the people? I mean, it's a very dangerous Thing to be in. It's kind of one of those things in the back of my mind that that whenever you see uh, pastors who are kind of outed for doing bad things or churches that have done bad things and it comes out in the media, I sometimes wonder uh, whether or not the devil was behind it or not. I've always wondered if that's like maybe God lets that happen on purpose, uh, just as a warning to His people. Just like I, I'm not going to put up with people messing around with stuff that's sacred. And so I'm going to let you be caught. I'm going <laughs> to expose you. I wonder if God does that sometimes. But that's certainly what happened uh, here. He gets caught in the middle of it. Now he's exposed. And uh, But there is this sense where we can identify with Saul. When the, when the wheels are falling off and God isn't there and we thought he would be, now we have to make a choice. And the choice oftentimes is either I continue to wait on God, trust in God, and, and you know just kind of live in that, or... You know, I just, I got to push through this. All right, well, it didn't happen like I thought God would, so now I'm going to try and make some things happen. And that's, that's just where you get in trouble. Uh, verse 14 now. Well, maybe we'll back up to, to 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when the Lord, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. All right, very important phrase that will come back several times. Uh, He has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. All right, so now you get this pronouncement, and this pronouncement would have been so hard to hear, but the idea is this. Saul, you have sinned so significantly that now your entire line, generations, will pay the price. You have lost the monarchy. Uh, that's just a, that is a condemnation that would have totally rocked his world. You've blown it so severely. It's like there's no forgiveness in this one. God's looking for a man after His own heart, and you know it did make me wonder this. Like so, he is just he found that he sins so bad he's going to suffer a consequence that lasts with him forever. Like it, it did make me think. I wonder if anybody ever wonders like, can I sin so severely that God would turn His back on me? Um, and I don't think that's a weird. Thing to wonder at all. And I've been asked it a number of times over my years in ministry. People ask, you know, have I sinned so severely that there now is no more grace left? You know, <laughs> am I going to suffer an eternal kind of punishment? Now, there's a couple sides to this. One is there are consequences that last. So when we sin and we sin significantly, a lot of times there are just consequences that last with us the rest of this life. You know, uh, it depends. You could, you know, blow up your family or uh, hurt somebody or whatever it would be. Uh, and those, those can last. But the idea of forgiveness from God. Uh, does not rest on your sin, but on God's grace. And so in this regard, we need to stop and think about this for a moment, just to to cover the idea. So when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood for mankind. And his blood was so powerful, what happened in that moment, the, the giving of his life for us was so powerful, that it had the capacity to cover some sin, all sin, all sin, right? All right, so, so then I would always ask this, if you feel like now I have bloated, I have sinned so severely, can God forgive me? My only question is this, is, is what sin have you committed that is more powerful than the blood of Christ? And the answer would be, there's, there's no such thing. You know, like like the, the blood of Christ covers all things. So then a truly repentant person who is like, listen, I love the Lord, I've legitimately loved the Lord, but I have blown it, I'm an idiot, I don't know what I was thinking, I'm so sorry. You know, like, Is there still grace for me? There was always grace for you. Jesus died before you'd done any of your sinning. And um, this is just one more on the pile, so to speak. Um, but, but you can never sin so severely you can miss the grace of God through the, the blood of Christ. If you are legitimately a believer in Christ, you're covered. Now we can talk about repentance and we can talk about uh, submission and we can talk about following and, uh, and uh, how to, how to kind of work your way out of the, the situation you've created. But that's very different than whether or not God can forgive my sin. And so I just wanna, wanna remind you of that. Now that being said, then we don't justify our sin, right? We don't go, oh, well, then I'm covered. I could do anything. Like, no, 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 And we don't, wanna, we don't wanna be what the uh, people would call uh, licentious, where we take uh, God's grace as a license to sin. But a little caveat there. But I don't want you to feel like, I, like Saul, I blow it so bad it's over. Like, no, there's still grace. There's still forgiveness. Uh, just draw close to Christ. Uh, okay, so, but he's got this horrible pronouncement. It's really hard. Um, uh, one of the things, too, in the midst of this, like, he is... He's not being thrown away, so to speak. He's not being rejected for his line just because of this sin. Because, like, the idea is, like, you did one thing, now it's over. I don't think it's just the offering that he tried to make, even though he wasn't the priest. I think it's the whole package. Um, His his actions just reveal that his heart is not right. He doesn't obey the Lord fully. He doesn't take responsibility for his actions. He does a lot of uh, blame displacement. Um, He doesn't put his Lord's the, the Lord's desires before his own. He's king, but he but he's king under God. And that's the thing he's forgetting, is, is that you have privilege, you have opportunity, you have strength, you have power. It's all because God gave it to you. Like, don't ever forget who's empowered you to be who you are. Right? Like, we have, I, one of the things, we have this Pledge of Allegiance. We, we say that we're one nation under God. Under God. Like, how, how much do we really live that way? Like, one nation accountable to God. One nation that needs to submit to God. Like, I think we missed some of that. And so this idea that you got to remember whose you are um, and who you serve under. And uh, and this whole idea of making the sacrifice, like I had to do this, uh, I needed God's favor. Like this wasn't gonna get God's favor, but I don't think it was about that anyway. I think he was lying about that. But part of it, he said, the people were starting to scatter, so I had to make the offering. And, and I think what he's thinking is this, just as a leader, these people are going to leave me, they have to fight. We have to, like They're the only army we have. I can't have them leaving. And so if this will keep them, I've got to do this. So then again, now he's just being very practical. I will violate God's will if it suits my end. All right, that's, I mean, that's just all sorts of bad. I say it's all sorts of bad, but then I also wave a little yellow flag for us. Like just caution. Are we doing that? Do we ever do that? We get to a point where like, I've kind of waited on God. It hadn't turned out. I'm starting to panic a little bit. I'm just going to go ahead and take a step here. Uh, I've seen that work out in, over, over the course of life in so many ways in people's lives. Um, but anyway, here we are. Uh, this has gone on. Now, let, just to finish this out, let's go back to verse 15 because we've got to pick up the last part of it. Uh, verse 15 says this, And Samuel arose, he went up uh, from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. I mean, oh boy, this is so hard. So hard, like 36,000 identified troops, a multitude of unidentified troops. We don't know how many 100,000 troops he's facing with 600 people at this. It's just, oh, what a nightmare. Verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward uh, Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. And so now, what the Philistines have decided to do, so they've got this, their army is kind of stationed there. Now they're sending out raiders. And what they're doing is they're just going into towns and they are, they're devastating the townspeople, they're intimidating the townspeople, they're taking supplies, they're taking goods. And what this is doing is pretty strategic, actually, as a military presence, you're just going around and scaring everybody, you're just, you're just freaking them all out. And the idea is like, don't you dare think you're going to fight us. Don't you dare pick up a sword and come after us. Like, it will not end well for you. And so what they're doing is this is just fear and intimidation is what they're doing. They're just trying to intimidate everybody, let them know this Philistine army is not going to take it. And so they're trying to steal the heart from Israel. Uh, But (laughs) the heart from Israel is already not very strong. Go to verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for the sharpening of axes and setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison and the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. All right, so I hope you just heard that correctly. Uh, Nobody has any weapons in Israel. They have two swords in all of Israel. Two swords, one with the king, one with his son. How are you feeling about their chances right now? Uh, There's a real David and Goliath kind of situation developing here. Um, So not yet, a few chapters, but it's getting there. Uh, like, this whole thing is crazy. I mean, like, I, as I'm looking at this, I'm very sympathetic, again, to the decisions that they're, they're trying to make here. But, I mean, I just can't. This is like buying guns from your enemy so that you can go to war with them, right? Like, just think about the logic, you know, behind there. I mean, you're showing up to the blacksmith. You're like, you have to cross borders or whatever. you go into to towns. You're like, hey, I need you to sharpen this into a sword for me. We're going to war with your people, and I'm going to need something to kill your friends with, you know, like. How does that conversation work? But here's the dumb thing about this. I'm thinking about it. I'm sure there are blacksmiths that would do it. Because they're probably thinking, at least I'm getting paid, right? I mean, let's be honest. We'd sell out our own people, a lot of us, if we just got, not us, but I mean, people. Uh, We'd sell out our own people if we just knew we were going to make some money. And so, like, I totally can see this whole thing uh, going down there. Um, But I will say this. However, when you have no weapons of war, it means you're going to keep your eyes on the Lord. Like, that's one of the mercies I think God gives us. One of the mercies I think God gives us is... You get to a situation where it's difficult, but you think if you cobble together enough intelligence or strategy that you can figure it out, you can make things work. And so I feel like God's like a step ahead of us sometimes in that, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, So here's what I gotta do. I gotta take away all your capacity to address this. I gotta make it so severe, so significant, so much so that you're like, I have no way out. And right when you get there, God's like, okay, good. Now you'll depend on me. So if you ever feel like you're in that situation, like I have no answers, there is no hope. I don't know what I'm gonna do. That actually might be a gift of God, just so like, oh, I just want to get you away from trying to depend on yourself as quickly as possible. Now you can just focus on me, right? And, and I, we're all going to be in those points in life, and I think Israel comes to that point very quickly here. So one of the things I like to do when we finish a chapter is I like to reflect on lessons learned throughout the chapter. And here, there are some very stark lessons uh, learned. Now, the big one, of course, is trusting God when you don't see any way out, Trusting God when you don't see any way out. Now, here's what I do know. There are probably some this morning, you're already in a situation like that. You're being forced to trust God because there's just no other way out. The rest of us have that in front of us. Uh, you'll have it in front of you multiple times before life is over. But this idea that I don't see any way out of this, I don't know how to, how to do anything here. I don't know what we're going to do. And then you're going to be f- forced to face a couple of choices. One choice is we're just going to have to trust God. We're gonna have to trust that God's gonna provide. Now, trusting God doesn't mean inactivity. I don't want anybody to think that, that you just sit back and like, well, we'll just have to wait for God to move. I mean, maybe, but it doesn't normally work that way. Normally what you do is you're trusting God while keeping your actions, your thoughts, the things you do in submission to him. But the other is, you know what? We're just going to try to make some things happen. Like you're, and you know, you're like, I'm no longer focusing on what the Lord is going to do. I've just got to figure this out and I'll do whatever, even compromise my morals, uh, which is what Saul did here. Compromise my morals or beliefs to accomplish what I need, need to do. That's when you're in trouble. And you don't ever want to get to that point. Um, You'll, you'll end up, if you, if you pursue your will over the Lord's will, these are the kind of consequences you end up with. You end up married to the wrong person. You end up living in the wrong place, going to the wrong school, working the wrong job, settling for what the world would love to give you instead of what heaven would love to bless you. Like, that's the, that's the exchange that you're making. Uh, now, in all of those things, can you ever mess up so bad that now it's unredeemable? Like, no. no, It doesn't work that way. Like, Saul lost the monarchy, but God didn't just kill him, Right? At least not right then. Uh, <laughs> that story may work itself out different later. But, but like the idea is this. The, the idea is that it's never too late. It's never too late. I want everyone to know it's never too late. And I've had people come to me like, I think I married the wrong person. I think I married the wrong guy." Like, okay, stop, stop, stop. The, you're not gonna fix it now by sinning again, right? Like, like, well, then I'll just divorce this Like, God hates divorce. Let's not divorce. Let's just say now that the God who, who his, one of his main jobs is redemption. Like, let's ask God to redeem this foolish thing that you have done. And that's when God gets to shine. Like, he can really take credit. Like, you screwed it up, you messed it up, you got there, but now he can show you what he can do in the midst of it. It's because that's what God does. God redeems. He redeems people, he redeems situations. Uh, And and in Christ, I will say this, in Christ, there's always a path back to restoration. In Christ, there's always a, a path back to restoration. It's your pride, our pride, that inhibits that. And so the sooner we can fall to our knees, the sooner we can confess that I don't have what it takes, the sooner God can begin to really work and show what he can do through a situation. Uh, and let me finish with this and we're gonna, we're gonna major on this in the next few weeks but um, this idea of a person after God's own heart that, that's never changed that's what God wants God wants people who are after his own heart and so when Jesus was on earth he said this in Matthew chapter 10 verse 38 whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me so Jesus is on this path that he invites us to walk with him this is a call to walk the path of Christ And the way I would think about it is, is this, if Jesus were to suddenly stop and turn around, would you be standing behind him? (laughs) Like, I mean, that's metaphorical, of course, but like if he, if he suddenly stops, turns around, does he find you behind him? That is going the the same kind of direction that he went in life, that looking at people the same way he looks at people in life, looking at yourself the same way that he would, would look at you. Like, are, are we really walking this path uh, of, of bearing this cross, kind of this idea of this death to self, and then going where he goes? I'm always reminded of the phrase that he would share with people when he called them to follow him. And he's like, walk by, he said, come and follow me. Come, me. Like, it's, it's like, go where I go, do the things that I do. That's what he wants us to do. So are we headed in the same direction, concerned about the same things? Th- this is really what it's all about. And this is where Saul failed. If, if the Lord suddenly stopped and turned around, Saul was nowhere to be found. And in fact, Saul was playing the role of the priest uh, at that time. Like that's, that We can't be that way. And so we're gonna pause right now. I want you to just bow your heads with me real quick. Bow your heads. And uh, well, let's talk to God about our proclivity to abandon him. Uh, Lord, it is true that we are a fickle people, and even those of us that have been Christians for years can wrestle with staying faithful when it just doesn't look like there's any way out. And I don't know what kind of compromises we might be inclined to choose, but I do know that we still wrestle with the residue of flesh, even those of us that are saved. And so, Lord, may we just renew with you this morning this idea that we get it. Jesus, you are sovereign. That's what it means for you to be Lord. And we need to remind ourselves, for those of us that have submitted to you, that believe in you, that you are, in fact, our Lord, sovereign over our life. So, Jesus, may it be that you would lead us and that we would release this battle with the flesh to force, as it were, our will upon you and to allow you to work your will through us. We acknowledge your holy name this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen.